This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. For this episode, uh, we are going to discuss an issue that is uh, an issue that's been with us in our society for a long time, but also an issue of greater uh, importance uh, in our current moment because of the ways in which so many students are learning at home, not in their traditional schools. Uh, The topic is educational inequality and the ways in which uh, different communities in our society seem to have very different educational experiences and different educational achievement rates. Uh, We have with us a colleague and friend who I think has done some of the deepest uh, research on this, particularly looking at the data over time, as well as the experiences of students in different contexts. Uh, This is my uh, colleague, uh, Paul von Hippel. He's an associate professor of public policy, sociology, statistics, and data science at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, He's best known for his work on summer learning, summer weight gain. Uh, I assume he means summer weight gain for students, not just for, not for everyone else, though that seems to happen for all of us. Research design uh, and missing data. Uh, He works on evidence-based policy, education and inequality, and the obesity uh, epidemic. And and Paul is also, and this is why I I love Paul, he's an autodidact and a a scholar of every sense. Uh, Before his academic career, He worked as a church music director, a data scientist. He worked in a bank working to prevent fraud. And now he's taking up jazz piano. Uh, We should have had you play the piano for our program, Paul. I couldn't fit it into the car where I'm doing this interview. (laughs) Okay, well, next time we'll have you on from Carnegie Hall. How does that sound? (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Paul. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Paul von Hippel, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? Hologram Semester. Hologram Semester. I think I have a sense where this is going. Uh, Let's hear it. Hologram Semester. It is odd, Zoom, this semi-translucent slime through which we glare at each other from our bedrooms. One kid holds his sour-looking cat. Another's voice cracks up. I clip my toenails out of sight. Another types on a different computer. It is odd the magnet school where nearly all have internet. The teachers who sent emails after emails, setting up our portal into 25 different lives. Odd to find ourselves almost normal, two days into a hologram semester. And I can only wonder what it's like on the lonely virtual connections of other schools. What it's like to be a high schooler right now without internet or trying to make yourself care about fungi reproduction as your four-year-old little brother runs with scissors to the reflection on your dark school-provided computer, or the quickly multiplying number of blank-eyed teenagers looking at their parents through the quarantine glass, watching them wheeze for a ventilator, unaware completely of the teacher rattling off geometry to a non-existent classroom, floating between server signals somewhere in California. In this strange airwave education, we all feel some debt of gratitude to the presence of television. I'll begin to understand the vital importance of toilet paper, trying to watch siblings or translate Latin in citywide bedrooms. In this odd moment of scholastic pixels, we all find ourselves relying on little signals, hidden illusions, to remind ourselves that the world hasn't disappeared. Emergency room, magnet school, food desert, or virtual classroom. It's wonderful imagery, Zachary. What What is your poem really about? My poem is really about what it's like um, 
now uh, the first week, at least for me, where we're doing completely online school uh, in the midst of coronavirus, really how odd it is to, to have a virtual classroom, but at the same time, all the inherent inequalities in relying on uh, the belief that everyone has access to internet, that everyone is able to do this, and, and how dangerous that can be. And, and, and you feel the inequalities already? Um, I don't personally feel the inequalities, but I think it's, it's so easy to see um, just based on the numbers looking at who has internet connection that these divides go beyond just uh, circumstance, that they're really based on racial lines and uh, where people live. Great. Well, that's certainly an appropriate place to turn to, to Paul. Uh, obviously, Paul, educational inequality is a, is a longstanding problem in our society. Why is it such a problem? Why is it something we haven't been able to fix? Well, um, when you say our society, I think you're talking about the U.S. And the first thing I want to address is this idea that we have more educational inequality in the U.S. than uh, other countries do, other developed countries. And uh, in fact, we don't particularly, however you look at it, if you look at the overall spread of children's test scores or the gap between rich and poor children or between children with more and less educated parents, it's not conspicuously bigger in the U.S. than it is in other developed countries. Uh, when it comes to educational inequality, the U.S. isn't the least unequal country, but it's far from the most unequal country. We're, we're not an outlier. Um, and Americans find that hard to believe. You know, we're exceptionalists. And we right. think that if we're not the best at something, we must be the worst at something. But we're not. We're kind of in the middle of the pack when it comes to inequality. In fact, um, I, over the last few years, I've learned that some countries that Americans think of as being homogeneous and egalitarian, like Japan and South Korea, have by some measures more unequal test scores than we do. Uh, we might think of those countries as being homogeneous, but the people who live in those countries don't necessarily see themselves that way. I've got a student from South Korea who's always telling me about the inequality between urban and rural areas in that country. So if Americans have some idea that Koreans are uniformly high achieving, that's not an idea that Koreans share. Interesting. Interesting. But nonetheless, uh, our, our own uh, ideals of what an educational system should look like and the opportunity that should, pro should be provided for yeah. all, uh, that does not seem to be a reality in the way we wish it would be, correct? Well, I mean, yeah, Horace Mann said his vision as uh, one of the founders of the common school movement was that education would be the great equalizer. It would be the balance wheel, he said, in the conditions of men. And so it's you know disappointing that we still have a great deal of inequality today. But where does that inequality come from? Um, I'll limit myself to the U.S. context. We, we have this persistent idea that the fact that some kids score higher on tests and get further in school, that that has primarily to do with uh, school quality, that um, you know, some kids just go to worse schools and therefore they're, they're, they're doomed to do poorly on tests and more likely to drop out and so on. And schools do matter for children's success, but they're not the primary driver of inequality and in educational outcomes. What really matters the most are the characteristics of the families. Families are much more important for children's success than schools are. So, and you can just, you can walk through any, any kind of resource you want to. If, you, if you're interested in school spending, you have to acknowledge that how much money your parents make is much more important than how much money your school spends. And uh, whether your parents finished college matters much more than whether your teacher finished a master's degree number of children in your classroom matters much less than the number of children in your home and whether they're competing for the attention of one parent or have two or none. And on and on, it's families mainly that makes the difference. The contribution to, of schools to inequality does matter, but it's relatively small. The main source of inequality is really differences between families. And, and has the growing inequality over the last 
three decades or so in income and living conditions among families, has that therefore translated into growing inequality and educational achievement? Well, you know, it's an interesting story because there are two trends pointing in opposite directions. I mean, the, the first one is the one that you're talking about is that families have been moving apart. Uh, families are much more unequal today than they were in 1970 and or 1940 and not just in income. They're also more unequal in size. We've got more single parents raising multiple children and more married parents raising just one or two. And they're more unequal in education. You know, in 1970, coming from a highly educated family might mean that your father was a doctor and your mother was a nurse, but today it could be that both parents are doctors. That's not an uncommon scenario today. So there's a lot more inequality between families. Um, and that might well uh, have led to greater educational inequality, except that there's this actually kind of wonderful uh, contrary success story that surprisingly few people know about. It's hardly a secret, but uh, surprisingly few people know about it or want to believe it. And that is that schools have moved in the opposite direction. They've grown dramatically more equal over the decades. Uh, since the 1970s, in fact, really since the 1930s, state governments have taken on a growing share of school funding and they've taken... Uh, great strides to ensure that school spending is spread out across the state and is more unequal in different communities than it used to be. Uh, the story varies from one state to another. There are all these, you know, every state story is unique, but many poor districts are spending about as much or even a little more than middle class districts today, and only the very richest districts are spending substantially more. So you've got these two contrary trends. You've got um, this increase in family inequality, and you've got this uh, buffering decrease in school inequality. And you know, thank heaven the school spending laws have changed as they have. Otherwise, we'd have really dramatic spending differences between schools reinforcing what we see between families. Uh, so what this means is that we've got today, compared to 1970, we've got more inequality between families, but less inequality between schools. And um, how does that all balance out? Uh, and that's not a settled question. So there's, a, there's an influential study from 2011, it was in the New York Times and everything, reporting that achievement gaps between rich and poor children had increased by about 50% since 1970 and doubled since World War II. And that's a very compelling story for people who are concerned about the effects of family inequality. But in the last year or so, a couple of studies have come out that failed to replicate that result in new data. Uh, one study, actually both of the studies found that achievement gaps are more or less the same today as they were in 1970 and maybe a little smaller. So uh, we really just don't know. We've got these two trends, schools growing more equal, families growing more unequal, and they may have just canceled each other out, or maybe that one has trumped the other. It's it's not clear at the moment. Gotcha. And, and, and you've written recently, and I know you have a new piece uh, that will link to this podcast coming out on this. You've written that, that uh, with regard to the coronavirus, uh, whether the trends are moving toward more equality or not, that uh, the virus and the way we're reacting to it is likely to increase inequalities. Is that is that true? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting moment for me because uh, you know I spent a lot of my uh, you know a lot of researchers in the area of education are interested in ways that schools magnify inequality, and I've I've taken a small group of my colleagues have taken a kind of contrarian position in this uh, in this debate. And said, you know, however unequal schools are, families are a lot more unequal. And in fact, schools do a lot to, uh, to uh, compensate for the inequality between families. Uh, so, and it's interesting, you know, we, we've kind of done this thought experiment for years saying, well, you know, imagine if we didn't have schools, how unequal would kids be then? And our argument has always been that kids would be more unequal. 
that was criticized as not being a very interesting argument for a while, but suddenly we find ourselves in that situation. <laughs> School's out. Uh, here, here we are in the counterfactual, and it turns out what everybody's concerned about is that inequality is going to get worse. So that tells me that uh, you know a lot of the um, th- that a lot of people are actually closet believers in this argument we've been making that families are more unequal than schools. Right, and, and as I understand your argument, it's that with um, students like Zachary learning at home, um, that places much more of a burden on families, and that the family inequalities will translate more directly into the educational experience. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. So, so somebody like 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 Zachary, who's a self starter and relatively advanced in his in his academic career, he's got two highly educated parents. Uh, he's going to be okay. I'm not too worried about kids like Zachary. Uh, the kids I'm worried about are kids who have less educated parents, kids who have many siblings competing for their attention, kids who have uh, maybe a poor internet connection or a district that's not handling things very well. Uh, and I'm more worried about younger kids than I am about older kids. You know, a, a high school student who's studying for the AP exam can can do pretty well on their own if they're uh, if they're a self-starter. But um, you know, a, pre, a, a preschooler or a kindergartner who, who their main job is really to learn to get along with other kids, I, I really don't see how they're able to do that when they're cooped up at home with their families. How, how does this uh, translate, though, in the way that schools are now interacting with kids? I've noticed uh, just interacting with my friends and uh, family that there's a really a big gap between how different schools are responding, how communicative they're being, and how they're adjusting their curriculum. And, and that's true. You're noticing that even in the Austin uh, school district. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's uh, I'd like to hear more about what's happening in Austin. My uh, I don't have a child in the Austin public schools, but um, my, my observation from news coverage has been that our education system has become dramatically decentralized. You know, states really aren't setting standards at the moment. The state of Pennsylvania, for example, told the districts that they just had to make a good faith effort to try and provide some kind of distance learning. And, and some districts haven't stepped up. Philadelphia, for example, uh, has really been refusing to provide any kind of distance learning since they closed on May 16th. Um, and so there are just, there's just dramatic differences in how different districts are handling it. And, uh, uh, until you spoke, I didn't think about different schools in a district handling it differently as well. And that's going to contribute to inequality. It's inequality of a different kind. I'm not sure they necessarily go together. You can be, a uh, a poor child in a challenging family situation in a district that's responding beautifully to the crisis. And you can be a well-off child with a very supportive family in a district that's responding badly. What, what you don't want to be right now is a poor child in a district that's responding poorly. Those are the kids that I'm really most worried about. Right, right. But one of the points you made in, in your article that I read, Paul, that really spoke to me um, was to highlight how how big the different experience will be, how large the gap will be between, uh, let's say, let's say two children um, uh, at about the same grade level, where one is at home with two other siblings and a single parent who's yeah. lost her job, versus another family where you have two gainfully employed parents uh, who also have flexibility in their work schedules. It seems to me those are going to be vastly different educational experiences, right? Yeah, yeah, they, they are. They are going to be vastly different educational experiences. And 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 uh, if the district is responding poorly, the uh, the well-educated parents are going to be in much much better position to compensate for that than uh, the single parent that you described, who's got uh, three children at home. And if the district isn't offering meaningful distance education either. Those, those kids are just going to go sideways uh, from now until September. And uh, we know that's going to be bad. 
we, we've heard a lot um, about how technology helps us learn, mm-hmm. but how does technology in this crisis exacerbate the divide between these two, two different types of students? Mm, well, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure the, the the problem is as bad as it's been made out to be. I just finished a piece for Education Next, looking at the situation in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia had what I think is some bad data suggesting that half the kids in that district didn't have internet access. And that would be an example of exactly what you're talking about, that some, some kids just not having the access to take advantage of the distance learning that's being offered. In, in fact, it looks to me more like 80 or 90 percent of kids in Philadelphia had internet access and the district just didn't realize it. Um, and so the district hasn't, hasn't offered anything because it can't, uh, can't offer it equitably. And I think that's going to have a negative effect on kids throughout Philadelphia, both, uh, both the poor and the better off. So, uh, but there are differences, you know, rural areas are not as well wired as, as urban and suburban areas. Rural kids tend to be behind and to the degree that those districts aren't able to respond with a robust distance learning uh, uh, response, I think those kids are going to end up further behind at the end of all this than they started out. And th- there, there are some ways in which the technology is going to reinforce uh, some of the inequality, but there's, there's other ways in which the technology can compensate for it. So I think we're, we're really going to have to see, this is really a, a stress test for education technology that the education sector has been re- reluctant to a, uh, adopt technology for a long time. And now it's being forced to do so in a hurry. And we're going to see what some of this technology is capable of and what is and isn't ready for prime time. Is there a historical analogy? We'll talk about analogies to students being out of school in a minute, yeah. but is there a historical analogy to such rapid use of new technology? Um. That's an interesting question. Are there crises that have sort of thrust us into the arms of technology? The, the, um, I haven't thought about this before. The one that occurs to me just off the cuff is World War II uh, right. and how, how it accelerated you know, the, the development of, of, uh, of computers and, uh, and radar and uh, advanced weaponry, uh, automation. It's, I, I haven't, I'm not sure that, uh, uh, I, I think that's, that's a good example. I'm not sure but there's been anything between then and now that so rapidly pushed us into the arms of technology, but it's, uh, it's an interesting question. Right. Right. And, and on the, on that, uh, that same note, um, thinking about historical analogies, one of the other really interesting things in your writing, Paul, to me is how you talk about, uh, what we've learned from other periods when, uh, students have been forced to, to leave school for extended periods. Yeah. Uh, you talk in your writing about strikes, school strikes, also about summer, uh, and 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 what have we learned from these other other experiences? What what's relevant for for us thinking about today from that experience? Yeah, I mean it, it's almost uh, in a sense the situation we're in. What, what's what's the cliche? You you probably know who who said this if it's if it's uh, uh, legitimately attributed to a, an individual. But but history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So that's Mark Twain, uh, but it's apocryphal. Uh, it's apocryphal. Okay, so. Somebody who was passing themselves as Mark Twain, passing themselves off as Mark Twain, might have said that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the, the situation that we're that we're in is it's literally unprecedented. We've never closed all schools nationwide for a period as long as this is going to be, as far as I know. But there are examples of local school closures lasting months or even years. You mentioned a couple of them. So there was a, a New York City teacher strike that lasted more than two months in 1968. There was another one less known to Americans in French speaking part of Belgium that lasted for two months in 1990. Uh, there was massive resistance to desegregation in Virginia uh, in the 1950s up to 1963, where basically white families walked out of schools or, or shut black families out of schools for months or years. 
Uh, and then there are these severe natural disasters. Hurricane Katrina is the one everybody wants to talk about right now, but there have been earthquakes and tsunamis, even plagues of locusts in Malawi that kept children home for periods of months or even years. So uh, we've seen this kind of thing before, uh, and it's never, it's almost never good. Um, so when students returned to, from, to the New York City schools after a two-month strike in 1968, if you look in the, um, if you look in the New York Times from 1969, you find that their test scores came in about two months lower than kids the years before. Uh, work on, on the French-speaking Belgian kids that were affected by the teacher strike in 1990 is really interesting. It compared them to uh, kids who spoke Flemish in Belgium, and the, the French-speaking kids fell further behind the Flemish-speaking kids. Uh, they didn't advance as they, they were more likely to repeat grades. They didn't advance as far in higher education. Uh, Katrina wasn't good. The interruption of schooling in Katrina uh, caused test scores to fall sharply among affected kids, although some of them got it back when they transferred to better schools in Texas uh, after that, particularly those whose schools weren't particularly good before the crisis. So that, that was a little bit of silver lining there. But in general, interrupting school uh, is not a good thing uh, for a long time unless you're able to compensate for it in some way later. Yeah, I remember uh, my kindergarten year when we lived in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, there was a huge teacher strike in 2011, and we were out of school for a few days. It wasn't that many, but still, that is the only memory I really have of that school year. And <laughs> it left an impression on me about uh, about school closures and, and, and how devastating they can be. Yeah, it's, and the, you know, it's interesting, all, all these extended closures, there's also this feeling of uncertainty, which we have now. You know, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, people were, we were talking about maybe getting back to school in the second week of April, and nobody's talking about that anymore. So it's, uh, it's very strange because we don't really know what we're up against or how long we're going to have to uh, compensate for it. And that was true in the teacher strikes as well. Right, right. And that, that uncertainty makes it, of course, very difficult for students as well as adults to focus, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Paul, for these other cases of school closures, do, do we see over many, many years that the lost learning time still remains significant? Yeah, I, I think the, the best research that's been done on that topic, there's been some on, on Katrina, um, but, it, but there's, there you have to account for the fact that they finished in different schools than they started. The, the best research that I've seen that addresses what's happening now most directly is what happened among French-speaking Belgian students who were affected by the 1990 strikes, and they never got it back. Uh, they didn't advance as far in higher education. They were, you know, more likely to get the Belgian equivalent of an associate's degree rather than a bachelor's degree. Um, and, you know, just it, it, this is a real lesson for us because it shows that if you don't do anything to compensate children for the time that they've missed, they don't automatically get it back. There's, there's, there's no miracle. You really have to take steps. And, and you're a sociologist. I mean, do, do you think this will be a generational marker then for uh, for these students? Well, I'm hoping it's not. You know, I, I, uh, I have a kind of uh, manic depressive attitude toward the social sciences. <laughs> I'm, I'm really worried that uh, social scientists are just, just going to think, wow, this is really cool. It'll be interesting to see what happens to these kids who are being deprived of an education. And there will be all these, you know, highly cited papers that come out about how awful it was for them. And I'm really hoping that we can be more constructive in our involvement and actually uh, engage policymakers in a discussion about what we do to make it up to these kids so that they aren't, uh, they aren't marked for the rest of their childhoods and into adulthood. Right. 
Right. And, and this is one of the reasons I really enjoy your work, because I do think there is a uh, progressive impulse, a desire to, to, to use social science to improve our democracy at the core of, of your work, Paul. On that note, what, what should we expect then when, when uh, kids do go back to their schools, when Zachary goes back to his high school building? Uh, yeah. what, what should we expect? Well, there's, um, you know, we, we're still living with some uncertainty. So I'd like to think that kids are going to go back um, in the fall and that things will be normal from then on. But it's, it's possible as there's no vaccine. Currently, we don't know how bad the infection rate is going to get. It's possible that there will be continued interruptions. So I don't know when the whole thing is over and that kind of uncertainty makes it very difficult to plan. But let's assume for the moment that things are back to normal around Labor Day. Uh, what's going to happen is kids are going to come back and a lot of them are going to be behind. And the kids who are behind are more likely to be kids from poor families and more likely to be kids in districts that aren't stepping up to the challenge right now. And some of those kids are going to be so far behind that they should probably repeat the grade that they're in. Uh, if, if grade repetition was ever a good policy, this is the time to use it. Okay. But the difficulty that uh, district leaders are going to have is that they're not going to know who those kids are with much foresight because there isn't going to be any testing most places this spring. And teachers have limited contact with students, so there's not a whole lot to go on besides testing. So I think what districts should do if, if, if things are back to normal in the fall is basically for the first week there should be some uh, um, – some pre-testing to identify kids who are in need of some kind of remediation, whether that's um, whether that's uh, repeating a grade or some kind of Saturday school or, or, or something. The time's got to be made up to the kids who suffered most from the from the lost time or they're not going to get it back on their own. Um, and uh, uh, I also think I mean, there are some districts where uh, teachers essentially aren't uh, aren't working right now. Philadelphia is an example. Uh, where teachers are, have actually been asked not to reach out to families. Uh, and so those teachers, in a sense, it would not be unreasonable to ask them to make up some of the lost time by extending the school year uh, when kids come back and just re really, really try and give back to kids some of what they've lost. It's not the teacher's fault. It's not the kid's fault either. And the kids really need the time. It's it's funny as you're saying that uh, Zachary's face indicates that's that's his nightmare scenario. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's it's not as bad as the nightmare we're living in right now, though. I, I think um, if, we, if we need an extra month uh, or six weeks of school next year, and we can get everybody back to where they should have been. That's actually a pretty good outcome. Right. I agree with that. I agree. And and Paul, we, we always like to close, as you know, really thinking forward. And so be, beyond uh, next fall, in the coming years, uh, how, how can we as social scientists and as citizens who are concerned and, and thoughtful, uh, how can we start to address these legacies uh, and these complex uh, outcomes? Mm -hmm. I think actually I'm a little bit, um, I mean, I, I think basically the, the time's got to be made up for the kids who, who, who've lost it and who need it the most. And I'm a little bit optimistic actually about um, uh, our what we're going to discover about what technology is can be good for. I, I think in some ways education technology is going to be disappointing in this break, but we're going to find out some things that it's good for. I read today, my colleague, uh, Ben Riley tweeted, he's having conversations with district leaders and they're saying, well, I guess there's no excuse for having a snow day ever again. Right. Right. So, you know, if it turns out that, uh, you know, we, we, we all get trained in how to use zoom and provide uh, we can provide education through short, interruptions in the future, that's not such a bad thing to uh, to come out of the crisis. So th I think there, there are going to be some silver linings. 
I, I was thinking about that too, Paul. I was thinking that um, uh, the uh, various government agencies that fund educational research, and including the non-government agencies like the Spence Foundation and others, right, right should be should be funding very rigorous study of, of this online learning environment and and what works and what doesn't work, and yeah. and, and then implementing that. Right. There's there's just there's so much effective randomness in what's happening now, and in addition to some districts responding more effectively than others, some districts are going to just stumble into technology that works pretty well, and other districts are going to stumble into technology that's disappointing. And we should really learn everything we can from that. I, and I agree that the uh, that the major funders should be focused on those opportunities. Is there also something for families to learn? Is there something to think about in terms of um, how a family should be approaching education? I mean, are the, the presumption we've had for a century and a half, right, has been that school is something that happens outside the home. Should mm-hmm. that be changed? Yeah, and that's a that's a class issue. So um, there's there's research on how people from different social classes view view schools, and uh, um, middle class parents tend to be very interventionist. And if things aren't aren't if things aren't going well for their child, they want to go in and meet with the teacher and uh, try to get things back on track. Whereas uh, uh, poor families are more likely to take a hands off attitude. And I think what this crisis is going to is going to show everybody is that we can't afford to take a hands off attitude. And if it winds up with poor families being more involved in their children's schooling, then that can, uh, that can be a silver lining as well. I also think a lot of, a lot of families are, um, are having some, some quality time together right now and hopefully discovering their, uh, their bond in a way that would be difficult if we were all as busy as we usually are. And that's a silver lining too. Right, right, and and it's it's renewing for us the important role we all have to play as as educators, as parents too. Yes. Right? So, so Zachary, what what do you think? Do, do you see um, do you see some of these silver linings, and do you think these silver linings can be um, motivating for students like you? Um, I think that that it offers us a real opportunity to um, to to. to um, to remind ourselves about how important school is in our lives and also honestly how much we miss it. I mean, I had so many friends who would complain about school all the time, but <laughs> by the end of, of our, our long weeks of, of staying home alone, uh, we, we miss school. And I think it, it really reminds us uh, how valuable school is and, and how important our educational experiences are. And, and so, Paul, that's my last question to you. Will, will we as a society value education more coming out of this, especially at the K through 12 level, or will we go back to where we were before, where we've always valued it, but it, it, it's something that, that often also gets, gets forgotten on our priority list? Yeah, uh, that's, um, I think that's going to be unequal too. So um, uh, Zach is not the first high school student uh, uh, that I've heard say that he misses, uh, misses the routine of going to, uh, going to school every day and misses his friends and so on. Um, my daughter does not particularly feel that way about not going to school. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, parents in Philadelphia, I think feel pretty, feel pretty frustrated with the leadership in their district. Uh, so I think it's going to change people's attitude towards schools and, and in some areas it'll be uh, a positive change in some areas it'll be negative. Great. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I guess it's up to leadership, at all levels, local, state, and national, to to try to emphasize the positive elements of this and to try to uh, educate the educators about why this is so important. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're also seeing a, we're getting an opportunity to see which uh, which districts have effective leaders who can handle a crisis and which don't, and we should take appropriate action when this is all over. Yes, well said. 
Well said. Well, Paul, thank you for for sharing uh, your your insights, and and these insights are so helpful because uh, they're they're based upon the kind of deep research you do that very few people uh, do, and and it's so important that when we're having these conversations, we we bring that research into the, to the discussion, and that we also encourage more of that research. I, I think one definite positive in this moment is, as you said, we're going to be able to study some things we really couldn't study before. That's right. I, at least I hope so. <laughs> and uh, and Zachary, thank you as always for your insightful poem and for sharing your experiences. As I guess, uh, if if Paul is a social scientist, you're kind of the guinea pig for this, right? As one, <laughs> as the, <laughs> the person going through it all with so many other students uh, out there. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for taking the time away from your work and from your helping your kids with their schoolwork to join us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.